We all know that uh, fishing stories are usually not very trustworthy, right? We've all uh, heard fishermen tell their tall tales. A fisherman goes out and he catches a a little minnow-sized fish, and by the time he gets home, he's caught a record-setting fish. Because fishermen love to exaggerate. Fishermen are famous for their tall tales. Well, in Luke chapter 5, we have a true fishing story. It's an amazing fishing story for sure. If it wasn't in the Bible, probably none of us would believe this fishing story. But here it is in God's inspired, inerrant, infallible word. And so this is one fishing story you can believe. This fishing story is true, it's trustworthy, it's accurate. It is a story of a miraculous catch of fish. But there's so much more going on here than just a huge catch of fish. See, this is not only a trustworthy fishing story, it is a fishing story full of truths that we need to hear, full of gospel truths. Peter obviously is the key figure in this story, and Peter finds two things in this story we're going to look at this morning, two things Peter found that we need to find as well. Peter in this story finds mercy, and Peter finds a mission. Peter finds mercy, and Peter finds a mission. And of course, what we're going to see is that Peter's experience is a model for all of us. What Peter experiences here is a paradigm for the Christian life. So let's talk first about how Peter found mercy on this day. Let's set the scene, uh, noting what Luke tells us at the very beginning here. At the beginning of this chapter, Jesus is gathering a crowd. Jesus has become very popular with the masses as a miracle worker and as a teacher. And so Luke tells us people are flocking to him to hear the word of God. And of course, every time Jesus speaks, people are hearing the word of God. He is the word of God incarnate, the word made flesh. And so of course, his words are God's words. Of course, every sermon he preaches is the very word of God. And people want to come hear God's word from the lips of Jesus. Jesus is by the lake of Gennesaret. And uh, the crowds are pressing him, pressing up against him on the shore. And so in order to better address the crowds, and perhaps to get some room as well, he borrows a boat, a fishing boat, from Simon Peter. Simon Peter is one of the local fishermen there. He's apparently got a business with some other men that are also mentioned here, who also become Jesus' disciples. They've got a little fishing enterprise. Jesus borrows a boat. And there are both practical and symbolic reasons for this, practical and symbolic reasons for Jesus to preach from a boat. We'll come to the symbolic reason in just a bit, but practically this gave him a way to reach a larger audience with his voice, and speaking from the water would have uh, certainly helped the acoustics. More people are going to be able to hear the word of God from Jesus as he preaches from the boat. Now when he finishes his sermon, uh, he gives Peter some fishing Uh, instruction. He tells Peter to put out his nets in the deep water. Peter's working on his nets. Peter and the others are working on their nets from their uh, fishing expedition from the previous night. Uh, And Jesus gives this instruction, cast out your nets in the deep water. Now, you need to understand this advice was uh, was not the kind of thing that normally fishermen would take. 
Uh, normally, fishing was done at night on a lake like this when the fish couldn't see the net. You wouldn't really have much success, typically, fishing during the day. And actually, in this case, Peter says they had been out fishing all night and caught nothing. So they had been out. These are professional fishermen. They know what they're doing. And yet they had had a completely fruitless night. That's one thing I can relate to. Usually the fish are very safe when I go fishing. Uh, that's, that's, so I can relate to what happened here for these fishermen. But Peter says, despite the fact they've had a fruitless night of fishing, and despite the fact that this advice goes contrary to all customary fishing techniques, Peter says he will obey. It's contrary to common sense. It's contrary to all commonly accepting fishing practices. But Peter says, nevertheless, he will obey. Peter doesn't yet understand fully who Jesus is, of course, but he does know there's something rather unique about Jesus. After all, in the immediately preceding chapter, back in Luke chapter 4, Jesus healed Peter's mother-in-law. And so he knows there's something special about Jesus. He may not know exactly what yet, but he knows there's something special and powerful about this man. So normally fishermen would never take advice from a carpenter. Uh, and fishermen would certainly never take advice from a preacher. They know better than that. Uh, no, no carpenter or fisherman or, or, or preacher is going to tell a fisherman how to fish. But in this case, Peter decides to trust and obey the word of Jesus. And so they put their net out in broad daylight in the deep water. And they get an amazing result, an astounding result, an unbelievable result. In fact, they get so many fish, it almost breaks the net. And so actually, they signal for the other boat to come and help them because there's so many fish to haul in. One boat's not enough. In fact, they get so many fish, not only are the nets about to break, it's so many fish, these fish are about to sink both boats. This is the catch of a lifetime. It is just amazing. Obviously, this is a supernatural catch of fish. This is not the kind of thing that normally would ever happen. So what's going on here? Well, clearly Jesus is performing a miracle. Jesus is demonstrating his complete dominion over the creation. He has complete dominion over every facet of the creation. He is a new Adam who has subdued the creation and who rules over the creation. He has dominion over the fish of the sea, even the fish that travel in the paths of the sea, as Psalm 8 puts it. Peter realizes he has witnessed and even participated in a miracle, an act of divine power. But what is Peter's response? This is where the story really gets interesting. His first thought is not to run off to the market to sell his fish and make a fortune. That's not his first thought. No, what is his thought? What is his response? What does Peter do? He falls on his knees before Jesus and he says, depart from me for I am a sinful man, O Lord. Really, really interesting. Earlier, Peter had called Jesus master. Now he elevates that title to Lord. And it's beginning to dawn more and more on Peter who Jesus is. That this is in some way the Lord of creation. He is the Holy One of Israel. He is the promised Messiah. He's the promised seed of the woman, the new Adam. Peter has witnessed a glimpse of the divine glory shining through Jesus. And suddenly, <clears throat> suddenly, he is aware <clears throat> of his sin and his sinfulness in ways he was not before. 
It's really interesting. Anytime in Scripture when people witness a theophany, that is some kind of revelation of the divine glory, a theophany, some kind of manifestation of God's glory within the creation. Anytime in Scripture someone witnesses a theophany, they always have the same response. The manifestation of God's glory brings men to humility and it brings men to shame over their sin. And that's what happens with Peter here. This is a theophany, a revelation of the divine glory. And Peter is humiliated, he's brought to his knees, and he experiences shame over his sin. He realizes what a sinner he is. The, the power and wisdom and holiness and majesty of God, whenever they're revealed, expose our sin and break us. In God's light, we come to see our own darkness. When the spotlight of God's holiness shines on us, what do we see about ourselves? We see our own filth and wretchedness. Now that's what happens with Peter here. In fact, I said anytime in Scripture you have a theophany, this is always the response. It's brokenness, it's contrition. <clears throat> there, there, there's this overwhelming conviction of sin, these feelings of guilt and shame. It happens with the prophet Isaiah back in the Old Testament in Isaiah chapter 6. In Isaiah chapter 6, the prophet has a vision and he sees the, the glorious God high and lifted up in his temple. And when Isaiah sees the glory of God, what does he do? He cries out, woe is me for I am lost. Woe is me for I am undone because I am an unclean man of unclean lips. Encountering the glory of the Lord humbled Isaiah and made him aware of his exceeding sinfulness. The Israelites at Mount Sinai in Exodus 19 had the same kind of experience. They didn't want to get too close to God because it was too terrifying. It exposed their sin too much. Exodus 19 is this way. Daniel in Daniel chapter 10 has this kind of experience. Job in Job chapter 24, uh, Job chapter 42. It's the same thing again and again and again. Anytime someone encounters the divine glory, anytime the spotlight of God's holiness shines on a person's life, what happens? Getting a glimpse of God's majestic holiness convicts people of their sin. But it's really important for us to see, too, that that is never the end of the story. For example, in Isaiah chapter 6, what happens next? Isaiah confesses, I'm an unclean man with unclean lips. And what happens? One of the seraphim, these, one of these angelic figures surrounding the throne of God, brings a burning coal from the altar and touches Isaiah's lips with it and tells him his guilt is taken away and his sin is atoned for. Isaiah experiences conviction, but then he experiences cleansing. The light of God's glory not only exposed Isaiah's flaws and failures, it also brought Isaiah forgiveness and healing. The glory of God made Isaiah feel hopeless one moment and then full of hope the next. So he's ready to go and be a part of the mission that God wants him to carry out. The same thing happens here with Peter. The glory of God is revealed through the miracle Jesus performs. And Peter is shattered. Peter is undone. Peter says, I am an unclean man. I have unclean lips. I'm a sinner. I'm not worthy to be in the presence of Jesus. See, coming to know God as he truly is and coming to know ourselves as we truly are go together always. Coming to know who God is and coming to know who we are 
John Calvin says that that's the whole of wisdom right there. Knowing who God is and who we are in light of who God is. We see God as holy, and so therefore we see ourselves as we really are, as sinners in need of salvation, sinners in need of forgiveness. That's what happens to Peter here. But what happens next? Peter had said, depart from me, from a sinful man. Jesus does not depart. He does not do as Peter wished. Instead, Jesus says, fear not. Fear not. Those amazingly comforting words. Fear not. Here, Jesus, here, Peter is full of fear. Full of fear because of his sin. And what happens? Jesus says, fear not. Jesus speaks a tender, loving word of comfort. Peter's full of fear. And Jesus answers that fear by saying, fear not. Peter is full of fear because he sees his sin in light of Jesus' holiness. He's full of fear because he knows he justly deserves God's wrath and is without any hope in himself. But now Jesus takes away that fear and gives him hope. See, implicit in this command to fear not is a promise of forgiveness. Nothing could drive Peter's fear away unless there is a promise of forgiveness built into this command, fear not. When Jesus says fear not, that is a word of absolution to Peter. This is Jesus cleansing Peter of his sins. It is as if Jesus says to Peter, take heart, your sins are forgiven. That's Jesus' word to Peter. Fear no more. Forgiveness drives out fear. Jesus says, fear not, for I have forgiven you. Your guilt is taken away. Your sin is atoned for. That's Jesus' message to Peter. And of course, that's Jesus' message to each of us as well. And so notice what is happening here. The same miracle that reveals Jesus as the sovereign ruler of creation and the holy Lord of Israel also reveals Jesus as tender and compassionate and merciful with grace abounding even to the greatest of sinners. In fact, I would say the real miracle in this passage is not Peter's catch, it's Peter's forgiveness. That's the real miracle of this story. Not the huge catch of fish, but the the huge number of sins that Jesus forgives. That's the real wonder and marvel here. Again, note this. As soon as Peter realizes the depth of his depravity, he finds mercy and grace. He finds Jesus to be a fully adequate and all-sufficient Savior. Jesus says to him, I did not come to condemn you. I came to forgive you. Peter experiences conviction, as painful as that is. Then he finds the comfort of mercy. And that's really the pattern of the Christian life. The whole Christian life is continually being convicted of your sin, which is painful, and then finding the comfort of God's mercy to us in Jesus That's the pattern of the Christian life. We experience conviction of sin, followed by the comfort of forgiving mercy. Peter finds in Jesus a God who saves and who cleanses and who gives hope, a God who forgives, a God of astonishing mercy and amazing grace. Yes, Peter was terrified and Peter was ashamed. Peter is full of fear, but Jesus' compassion more than matched 
that fear. Jesus' compassion overcomes his terror. Now I guess many of us can identify with what Peter goes through here, but I have to tell you, I've seen this as a pastor many times, sometimes this process gets short-circuited. You need to complete the circle. You need to complete the circle. You need to complete the loop. Sometimes it gets interrupted. I've known many people, many people in this church who've had their sins exposed and they feel a sense of shame and brokenness over their sin and they feel they can never be worthy of Jesus. They feel they can never be worthy of the church. And so they say to Jesus, depart from me for I am a sinful man. I'm not worthy to be in your presence. I'm not worthy to gather with your people. I'm too guilty to be where God is. They don't think church can be for them because it looks like everyone else in the church has their act together. And they think to themselves, oh, well, these people, these good Christian people at TPC knew the things I've done. They would be disgusted with me. They would want nothing to do with me. Church is for perfect people. Churches for people who have their act together, or at least churches for people who are better than I am. They might come on a Sunday and see the smiling, happy faces of others at church, and they figure, I must be the only one who's really sinned terribly, who's really made a complete mess out of things. And so I guess I don't belong here with all the good people found at church. Now I'm here to tell you this day that that is nonsense. That is an anti-gospel way of thinking that you must resist with all your might. If you've ever been tempted to think that way, to go down that path of despair, to think you're too far gone, to think that you can't have anything to do with Jesus or the church because of things you've done, that is nonsense. It is a cliche, but it is true. The church is not a museum for saints. It is a hospital for sinners, if you are overwhelmed with a sense of your sin, there's no better place for you to be than gathering with God's people as the church. This is right where you need to be because this is where you will find the mercy of God being offered. You need to hear this loud and clear. Jesus Christ came to save sinners. Jesus did not come into the world to condemn the world. Jesus came into the world to save the world. Jesus Christ came to save sinners. He came to show mercy to sinners. The church is for sinners. The gospel is for sinners. The Lord's table is for sinners. Think again of that first membership vow that we heard affirmed this morning. You have to acknowledge your sin and that you are without hope apart from God's sovereign mercy. You acknowledge that you are dead in sins and trespasses if left to yourself. That is to say, when it comes to church membership, the righteous need not apply. The, the church is not a club for the righteous who have never sinned and have no need of forgiveness. The stark reality of it is this. The truth of it is this. We are all sinners. We are all in need of grace. And God is a God of abounding grace, even to the chief of sinners. God's grace is the oxygen of the Christian life. It's what keeps us alive and keeps us going. The Christian life always depends upon grace. We are utterly dependent upon the grace of God. And that's why the whole Christian life, we're continually throwing ourselves upon the grace of God. We're continually casting ourselves upon the mercy of God found in Jesus. 
We need to hear the gospel continually. We need to be reminded of the gospel continually because we are so prone to forget it. Only the gospel can remove our shame and guilt. There is never any reason for a Christian to wallow in shame or guilt. Experience shame and guilt, experience conviction of sin, yes. Wallow in it, no. Because forgiveness is readily available. The gospel reminds us it's not what we think or feel that matters. What we think or feel can never have the last word. You might think you're too far gone. You might feel overwhelmed by shame. But regardless of what you think or feel, Jesus says to you, fear not, I have forgiven you. Fear not, I have forgiven you. You might feel unloved by God. You might feel unloved by Jesus. You might feel unforgiven. Jesus says, fear not. Fear not, I love you. I forgive you. That is a word greater than our feelings. A word that should overcome your feelings. You might condemn yourself, but Jesus says, I forgive you. Jesus says, I've shed my blood to cover your sins. That is the gospel. See, your feelings are not a reliable guide to reality. The gospel is your guide to reality. The gospel defines reality for us. And the gospel reveals to us, yes, that we are sinners, but the gospel also reveals to us a merciful God. And so don't just look to your feelings Cling to the words of Jesus. Cling to the words of Jesus for dear life. When he says, fear not. Those words are your very life. I think the the mark of a Christian, the mark of a growing Christian, is that we are always marveling at God's mercy to us. It's just so astonishing that God would be merciful to me, and yet he is. And I think the Christian who grows is a Christian who never really gets over that astonishment that God has been merciful to me. Yes, being in God's presence will make you acutely aware of your sinfulness. That is true. That is painful. But God's presence is also full of grace and mercy and forgiveness. God's presence comforts us. And the church is especially the place where that comfort and that forgiveness is known. This is a place filled with the mercy of God, filled to overflowing with the mercy of God. If you want the mercy of God, you've come to the right place. Jesus is the one in whom God's mercy is found. And he promises to give us that mercy through his word and at his table and in the waters of baptism. These are the means of mercy, the means he uses to deliver his gifts to us. See, in Jesus, the fiery holiness of God is revealed, but the tender mercies of God are revealed as well. And the mercy we find in Jesus is like a drink of cold water, quenching the thirst of a man who is about to die of dehydration. That's what the mercy of God is. That's what the gospel is. That's what those words of absolution are. You're about to die of dehydration, and then you hear those words, take heart, your sins are forgiven. Now that thirst is quenched. You're given strength, you're given peace, you're given hope. Peter found mercy, and you can too. But Peter not only finds mercy here, he also finds mission. 
He not only finds mercy in this story, he also finds a mission. He finds forgiveness in Jesus, yes, but he also finds in Jesus one worth following, one worth obeying. And it is interesting how this follows the pattern of Isaiah in chapter 6. Isaiah gets convicted of sin when he sees the glory of the Lord, and then the Lord has a mission, and he says, who can I send? And Isaiah says, send me. Well, Peter's going to have the same kind of experience, the same kind of follow-through. Peter finds a mission. Even though Peter has acknowledged he is a sinner, and obviously Jesus doesn't disagree with that, Jesus, in effect, says to Peter, you're just the kind of man I can use. I've got work for you to do. Yeah, you're a sinner, all right. But you and I are going to be partners. You're going to go into a different kind of fishing business now with me. We're going to be partners. I've got work for you to do. I've got a mission for you to do. Jesus says to Peter, from now on, you will catch men. Jesus is saying, I want you to be a partner in my fishing business. We're going to go fishing for men. Now, it's interesting here. Jesus actually uses a very unusual word to describe catching men. It's a word that means to catch alive, not a word you'd normally use for fishing. But it's perfectly fitting if fishing is supposed to be a metaphor for evangelism, which obviously it is. See, fishing here is very obviously a metaphor for the mission of the church. So that's obviously what Jesus is talking about when he speaks of fishing for men. He's talking about the Great Commission. He's talking about evangelism and discipleship. That's what it means to fish for men and catch men alive. And once you see this, once you catch that metaphor, which is very obvious, you can begin to see this whole passage in a new light. Yes, this is a historical account. Like I said, it's a trustworthy fishing story about a miraculous catch. But it's also one big parable. It's one big metaphor. It's a symbolic story. It's not just about fishing. It's about spiritual realities. It's about gospel realities. And I'll tell you, uh, pastors and commentators throughout the history of the church, uh, as they have preached on and, and, and written about this particular passage, they have pointed this out. And so it's very common to see that the boat here that Jesus gets into, the boat symbolizes the church. The word is proclaimed from the boat. Fish are hauled into the boat. The boat, like Noah's Ark, symbolizes the church. In fact, Martin Luther even said the fact that two boats have to come together to share in this one catch of fish could very well represent Jews and Gentiles being united together in Christ. The Jewish boat's not going to be enough to hold all the fish that are going to be caught in the net that is the gospel. And so there's got to be another boat. There's got to be something more than that. So there's one catch of fish that gathers both the Jew and Gentile. That's what the boat means. The, the fishermen, of course, are obviously preachers of the gospel, the fishers of men. The net is the gospel itself. The sea is the world, the nations. The fish caught in the net are converts. And the huge catch is prophetic of things to come. It is a sign that God will use the church and the gospel to save great multitudes of sinners. The church will be just as successful in her mission catching men as Peter was in this fishing expedition catching fish. The church like Peter will need to obey the words of Jesus, yes. But when we cast the net of the gospel, we can be sure that Jesus will bring in a great multitude of fish from the nation. See, Peter found mercy, but Peter also found a mission. And of course, it is mercy that drives the mission, that makes the mission a success. Think about what happens to Peter later on. 
Acts chapter 2, Pentecost, the Holy Spirit's just been poured out. Jesus has ascended into heaven. And Peter preaches that first sermon in the Pentecostal church in Acts chapter 2. And what happens? 3,000 people find mercy from his one sermon. Peter cast the net of the gospel and caught 3,000 fish that day. Peter had received God's mercy himself. Now he shares God's mercy through his proclamation of the gospel. But see, we need to understand, Peter is not unique. Again, Peter is a model or a paradigm for all of us. Peter's experience is our experience. This is the good news. Again, God saves sinners. Jesus Christ came to save sinners, indeed a great multitude of sinners. Jesus saved sinners like Peter, sinners like me, sinners like you. That's who Jesus came to save. Don't let your sin keep you away. Bring your sin to Jesus. Bring your sin to the cross. Because that's where it's dealt with. See, Peter learned this lesson over the course of his life. It's so interesting to see this, and I'll, I'll close with this. In Luke chapter 5, when he witnesses the glory of God in the man Jesus, what happens to Peter? He is ashamed. Like Adam and Eve in the garden, he wants to hide himself. He wants to run away from Jesus. He knows he's not worthy to be in Jesus' presence, so he says, depart from me, for I am a sinful man. Go away from, from me, Jesus. I can't have anything to do with you. I'm too much of a sinner. But fast forward to John chapter 21, the very end of the gospel. This is after Jesus' death and resurrection. And Peter's really blown it. You know, Peter's always bumbling around doing uh, crazy, sinful things. Peter's blown it by denying Jesus three times. And so Peter decides to go back to his old life of fishing. And so he's out in the boat fishing. And Jesus appears on the shore, but they do not recognize him. And so this stranger on the shore calls out to the fishermen, have you caught any fish? No, they say. Professional fishermen again coming up empty. Jesus again, unidentified, says to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat. They obey. And once again, their nets are full to the point of breaking. It's a repeat of the miracle in Luke chapter 5. And suddenly Peter gets it. Suddenly all the pieces of the puzzle snap together for Peter. He exclaims, it is the Lord. He knows this must be Jesus now risen from the dead who's making this kind of thing happen. He's the only one who could do it. But what happens next? Instead of telling Jesus to depart, what does Peter do in John chapter 21? Peter jumps into the sea and he swims to the shore to be with Jesus. And there on the beach, Jesus and Peter have fellowship. They share a meal. And Jesus restores Peter and reinstates Peter as a fisher of men and a shepherd of his flock. See, Peter had learned the lesson. Don't let your sin stand between you and Jesus. Don't let your sin drive you away. Don't let your sin act like a wedge between you and Jesus. That's what Satan wants. Jesus invites sinners to himself. Yes, you are a sinner, so what should you do? You should run to Jesus or swim to Jesus if you have to. Do whatever it takes to get to Jesus. Because Jesus is mercy incarnate. He is the love and the grace and the goodness of the, and the glory of God in human flesh, in human form. 
Jesus is the grace of God abounding to the chief of sinners. Jesus is your savior, your mediator, your redeemer, your rescuer. Receive him, rest in him, trust him, love him, obey him, follow him. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Let us continue our worship by giving of our tithes and offerings.